0: Welcome to Cooking Books with me, Julie Smith, where each week a list of food writers take me through the four food moments that they choose from their latest books. This week I'm with the pie man of London town, Callum Franklin. Callum has pulled out his pies from the depth of British culinary history and turned them into a story that has captivated his 120,000 followers on Instagram, had superstar chef Thomas Keller send his teams over from California to watch and learn and now beaten Jamie Oliver to the top spot on Amazon with his new book, The Pie Room.
1: Really, the moment for me was about identifying a gap in knowledge and a loss of traditional technique. So that was the moment I said, in my head, I was like, right, uh, I'm going to learn this, and then I'm going to train the senior team, and then the senior team's going to train the younger chefs, and then hopefully they'll pass that stuff on to the next generation.
0: But before we meet Callum, Let's have another rummage through our sponsor, Odyssey's Hamper of Mediterranean Fine Foods. This week, we're hailing the health properties of kefir as we prepare for a COVID winter. Susanna Perez, kefir queen at Susanna and Daughters Kefir on the Cowdray Estate in West Sussex, tells us why. Milk kefir is a nutritional superstar. Kefir delivers a full spectrum of probiotics and this has the ability to heal the gut, lower inflammation and improve immune system. These powerful probiotics also have anti cancer properties. We know that an optimal functioning gut biome is essential for mental health and regulating mood is the second brain odyssey's kefir is made from organic goat's milk made in a cooperative dairy made up of just 12 members at the foot of manikio Mountain in the drama region of northern greece which cultivates organic seeds and greens to feed their herds who are free to eat as much as they want and spend plenty of time outside Now, let's head to the heart of old London town, to the Holborn dining rooms of the tiny little pie room designed and built by the man who's brought the good old beef wellington back to the centre of British gastronomy. He told me, why pie?
1: When we first opened, we were talking always about it being a London brasserie, right? That was the sort of idea. We wanted to um, have that sort of grand brasserie of a restaurant but its identity had to be its environment. Okay, so um, we built the gin bar. That was a big part of that. And then for me, it was really about understanding that area we were in. So the guests that were coming every day. You know, we have guests that come five days a week to the restaurant from the you know the the law firms around us, and um, whether they would appreciate my weirdness with pastry right so uh we tested the water slowly at the beginning and immediately we knew that people around that area love pies so that was the next step was i mean it's big restaurant right so it's uh 200 seats inside and 60 odd outside so we slowly built up more and more savoury pastry. Uh, the Beef Wellington came into play on probably about year end of year one. So we put Beef Wellington on every Wednesday night. And then uh, I started pushing the kitchen more and more with the savoury pastry stuff. And then we got to a point where I realised that I was putting so much pressure on the main kitchen with all of this pastry work because it's hot and it's busy in there and the sous chefs were doing a lot of that work. Um, We got to a point where we said, look, we either cap it here and we, we just keep what we're doing and do it well or if we want to progress... We have to build something. We have to build a room and separate it off. And that's where the Pyram came about.
0: But the lovely thing about that Pyram that you created is it, it's a hole in the wall. Mm. You know, it's, it's again, it's part of that story. The the fantastic decorations you've got. I mean, you, you say that you're obsessed with design. Um, but you really went to town on that little hole in the wall, didn't you? I've
1: accepted over the years that I'm a... I'm a details person, right? It's I can get fixated on small details with things. So that room was <laughs> if everything was a chance for me to have like an outlet for that really to to focus a lot of that energy on. Um so for the design of it I wanted it to um not only reflect, you know, a sort of Victorian pyram, um but also to reflect the detail that is in the work that is created in there. So we have an environment that the chefs are surrounded by, um, that influences their work. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of went to town and I uh, did some drawings and I had a very clear picture in my head actually of, of how I wanted it to look. I mean, it's a square room. It's quite, you know, in terms of design, it's fairly, fairly straightforward. Um, so I sat on one side of the room and drew it and then, sat on the other side of the room and drew that wall and then went to uh some architects and builders and they kind of looked at me and were like you're bonkers um <laughs> but that's how i wanted it to to end up and we've kind of st- were steadfast on that and then that's why it took a whole year to build it because i had this sort of bonkers idea of how it would you know it would all work out and all of these secret little nooks and crannies. I mean, there's surfaces on there, which are just, you know, it looks like a marble surface. But if you put a pan on it, actually you can cook directly through the marble. We have an induction unit which conducts heat through the marble. So everything's hidden away in, in, in order to keep that original look, that Victorian look. I mean, even the, goes for the blue roll dispensers, which you have to have in a modern kitchen, right? I mean, we had barrels wooden barrels built and yeah. and created to be like uh you know hygiene safe so that they're the dispensers and it doesn't ruin the look of the room.
0: I came there the first week with Felicity Spector mm. uh for the Delicious podcast and uh we were one of the first fa- two of the first two people to ever have your pie in that pie room and and they were absolutely fantastic oh, cool. pies but more than that Thank you. it was how to make a story out of a thing and that that is what i'm so interested in in this book um you know the pie in british history i mean we know that it is it started off as a sort of a working man's packed lunch didn't it It was a way of keeping food warm yeah it was also something that travelers took to see uh the the pie crust being like the early form of tupperware keeping things as fresh as they could possibly be probably weren't very fresh at yeah. all, but hey you know um but you've taken that idea and raised it haven't you um
1: i mean we're very fortunate to be able to look at some very old books. So, you know, we, we spend some time in the British Library and, and look at these beautiful books, and you kind of see, if you trace through history, it, there's these peaks and troughs of kind of the popularity of the pie and, and also how it is regarded, right? So, you know, you see the times, that like you said, where it's peasant food or it's very, you know, working man's food, and then there's times where it's, you know, the height of fashion because it was served at a royal banquet. And all of a sudden, we, we have it nowadays, right? I mean, you see uh, it, there'll be a, a certain cake maker is, is selected to sell, you know, to make a cake for a royal wedding. You will never get a cake from that cake maker again. It's the it's sellout. the most, dim- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that, that's where we see that fashion thing happen with pies. And I just felt like it was time to go back up yeah. again.
0: Well, you won't be doing four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. Will you, you won't be doing that kind of <laughs> entertainment theater, theater pie?
1: No, I don't think so. <laughs> but I mean, look, I mean, we are, we are always thinking about, um, those things. No, I mean, not obviously <laughs> blackbirds coming out of a pie, but, um, the, the sort of bonkers, um, really sort of ingenious pies that, people look at and think how was that done right and we do and we're working on one now um but at the same time we're working on you know super simple pies that we we that is just as complicated to get right because it is simple and there's nothing you can hide behind um i mean it's
0: the, the easiest pie is a is a phrase that's you know gone down in history because it comes from that sort of that peasant food but what you've done is you've made it really intricate Gastronomy, in many ways, and we'll go through some of those in your food moments. But mm. I'll what you've also done is you've kind of taken that idea of the heritage recipes, nostalgia food. I mean, you know, that four and twenty blackbirds baked in a pie. You know, it is all about that. It's about childhood memories, nursery rhymes, our connection with what we think is much more than food, it's story. And you play with it, and I want you to talk mm. about tell us that story of when you actually found the interlocking pie tins down in the basement of the Rosewood. Now, that was kind of the start of your pie career, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, what so what happened there was we have this, I mean, the building we're in is a hundred and nineteen twelve, yeah, so it's yeah, it's over a hundred years old, um, and there's this base, a huge basement down in the bottom of the building, and the building has been many different things over the years, uh, including being the, uh, you know, the headquarters of Pearl Assurance originally. This is why it's got this kind of opulent marble yeah. everywhere. This store downstairs is like an Aladdin's cave, right? And quite often I'd go down there. And just go exploring around it and you'd find, you know, beautiful silver service trolleys and things like this, which we would then have refurbished by silversmiths around the corner and, you know, put into use in the restaurant. And then one day I found what I assumed was a pie tin, right? And uh, I took it upstairs to my kitchen and I was a little bit embarrassed, that I didn't, I, I kind of knew what it was, but I didn't know exactly how to use it. Um and we've got a big team. We have sort of thirty five chefs, you know, in the restaurants at full full uh, capacity. And I took it up and said, has anyone used one of these before? And actually I mean my my number two, my my senior sous chef at the time, David Burke, was uh, you know, Dave was coming close to retirement and um he worked you know, he's worked and opened some of the best restaurants in the UK. And he was like, I don't know what it, you know, I've never used one boss. And um, I just realized immediately, okay, there's a massive gap in our knowledge here. And not just mine and David and the senior teams, but potentially a new generation. So all these young chefs we have, they're not going to learn this technique. And that will go through them and then you know it just rolls on and on so really the moment for me was about identifying a gap in knowledge and a loss of traditional technique so that was the moment i said in my head i was like right uh i'm gonna learn this and then i'm gonna train the senior team and then the senior team's gonna train the younger chefs and then hopefully they'll pass that stuff on to the next generation um uh, so we set about on it and it was a great trigger for the kitchen because. It opened not just pies. I mean I I spent <laughs> spent like a month touring the UK with one of my sous chefs learning sausage making after that, right? Because we were like, actually we we don't have that skill at the level that we want it. So we went around and worked with some master butchers around the UK. So it was it was a defining moment for the restaurant as a whole. Um, from rum- rummaging around in a basement. <laughs>
0: I mean, it's fantastic. There's two things there. There's that lovely... It's. I feel it's a metaphor for British food history, actually, you know, that there is this richness locked away mm. undiscovered i'm talking about the wonderful heritage that we've been sitting on all this time we've just let the industrial revolution kind of yeah. lose us and distance us from exactly. the, the great food that we were that was part of our dna um and that we've kind of attributed now to everyone else all, all around the world and and seen ourselves as food heathens um but you kind of discovered that back brought, brought it back but the other thing that I love is the little boy, the kind of the detective cook going, <laughs> and going oh, my God, what's this? And then there's the social media storyteller mm. who's like, Mm-mm. gap in the knowledge, gap in the market. And so there's that bringing it back and bringing all those things together is the brilliance, I think, that is probably behind the success of The Hope and Dining Rooms, Pie room and, and also the book, because people love a good story, don't they? Were you aware of all of that? Did you have that ka-ching moment?
1: We were already quite deep into doing a lot of the savoury pastry work before I started Instagram. And it was my wife, actually, who said, you know, you, you should think about putting all of this stuff on Instagram. And I was, at the time, I was genuinely like, no one wants to see brown food. Everyone wants to see colourful food, food with flowers on, food that looks like something it's not, and uh, that was, you know, what Instagram was at the time in terms of the the food world and what was popular. And um, so I, we tried it, and actually, yeah, it picked up, and straight away I realised that there was a demand for it, and I think the moment. I really became enthusiastic about using the internet for it was seeing international interest so you know chefs from the us or chefs from mexico or chefs from denmark saying you know this stuff's fantastic and we want to know well, more and, and thomas
0: keller sending a team of chefs over of his chefs yeah. to come and learn from you i mean you know michelin-starred chefs like thomas keller um absolutely you know when they start paying you attention that's just more than instagram isn't it
1: yeah that's so that's what i realized
0: well right, that's that's the power of instagram
1: it's the power of instagram and, and it opens up that world to everyone right um but th- that moment where i realized when the international chefs were, were sort of giving attention to what we were doing was that they want to see good british food right they <laughs> That, that's what they want. And, uh, you know, they know that there is this reputation in the country of, of sort of, you know, we, we don't always have a great reputation for food. But they are interested and they want to see that side of things. So, for example, with, you know, Thomas Keller sending chefs over over the last few years, I mean, he wanted them to have that knowledge, right, as a, as a round part of their knowledge in terms of being a better chef in the world. I knew that that was what we were doing at the restaurant. So, yeah, for me, it it invoked a, a sense of pride in British food um, and that kind of lit a fire under me. So I was like, yeah. OK, let's let's really do this and let's see if we can get um, do our bit to sort of enhance the reputation of British food
0: yeah absolutely I and mean, we've done it with music we've done it with mm. fashion why on earth weren't we doing it with food that was sort of a no-brainer really we're great storytellers in this country and uh, it's uh, t- it was a surprise that it took so long uh to get that going again let's go into your food moments um you start off with your haggis scotch egg why did you mm. choose that one
1: so um yes yeah, so, i mean that's i guess six years ago we started off uh, selling a Scotch egg at the restaurant, and there was this thing. There was this competition uh, in the in the UK called the um, the, the the Scotch egg competition. I, I can't remember the exact title <laughs> of it, but it was really popular. It was a big thing, um, and it was uh, run by uh, Young's pubs. I think uh, the, the brewery behind it, um, and it was this highly competitive, quite hyped competition around an egg with a bit of meat (laughs) wrapped around it. And I always thought it was really fun. You know, I always thought that was fun. And I thought I'd always go and watch it. And um, one year I was like, you know, we should put ours in. And I remember always looking at the competition and thinking, pitch chefs would do bonkers really complex scotch eggs and one of the rules was that um you had to serve it in your restaurant as well and i quite often look at ones people were putting in for competition and think there's no way they're serving that in their (laughs) restaurant it's far too complex but as well i always thought that there wasn't an honesty to the some of the scotch eggs they were making because they were too complex and it wasn't really a scotch egg so i said to my sous chef at the time let's do one and let's make it super simple and just focus on ingredients. we get the best egg that we can, uh and and make it just about, you know, a beautifully cooked Scotch egg that's really tasty. And we won. And uh you yeah, know, it was a big deal for us at the time. It was weird. We had like Dutch T V crews coming over to film and and uh, all the time I was thinking, you know, it's just an egg, but it was a big deal for us in terms of building our name up and uh and we've had that egg on in the restaurant ever since. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll I'll always have a soft spot for it and hopefully the, the eggs always got a soft spot in the middle as well. But um we sell <laughs> hundreds of them, hundreds of them every week and uh yeah and I never get bored of seeing one. Do you know what I and I, I thought about it so they were in service and there was one uh you know chef served one to me and it I just looked at it and I shouted at I was shouting at him and I was like that's such a good scotch egg and they and they're like that they, i mean they are genuinely like that all the time they're just consistent but it was just a moment that caught me off guard and he was looking at me weirdly I was like what <laughs> but i was just really happy i love seeing good scotch egg. yeah
0: it's a thing of beauty mm. it's really simple but again it's part of that peasant food you know wrap something that's warm and keep it warm mm. with a coating um put it in your sandwich box and open it up at lunchtime and it's still really warm yeah Um, I mean that's not quite the experience that you serve at the pie room (laughs) um your second Mm. the gala pie a British classic yeah um why this one
1: there there is a sort of link I guess with scotch egg as well with this I mean apart from obviously there being egg in both but in that If you talk to someone about uh, British snack food, these two would probably come into the same category, Mm -hmm. right? They're things that uh, you would, you know, eat in a pub maybe, watching rugby or football, or, you know, um, travel when you're driving on the motorway, something like that. It's a bit Alan Partridge, that. But (laughs) um, the big thing for me is that they are both done really badly, right? Consistently (laughs) across the country. There's that. I mean, the weirdest thing with, uh, you know, you were talking about sort of industrial revolution and we, we talk about commercialization of food and uh, the gala pie as it's sort of grown over the years has now turned into this thing where there is this like tubular processed egg that runs down the middle of it. It's really <laughs> odd. And if you deconstructed a whole gala pie, you'd be left with this alien sort of egg tube that uh, god knows who it's nothing came nothing to do with, that, with
0: any food that any of us have got experience no
1: with. <laughs> right and it just ab- doesn't make you hungry right seeing something like that so um i was like okay we should look at the garlic pie try and do our best to sort of get it back to where it was originally where it was you know just beautiful eggs down the middle and work out the cooking of it because yeah actually if it's got you know a slightly runny egg down the middle amazing um so that was a lot of uh trial and error in the kitchen to get that right and a lot of that as you we realized it came down to the sort of size of the pie rather than the cooking temperature we were making things too complex for ourselves by focusing on temperature whereas actually if you just reduce down the size of the pie around it it was much easier um but Ended up after all these months of testing, we was we sliced it. We were like, "That's amazing!" You know, that's that's actually a, a, like a beautiful dish, and it would stand up in the window of a display in any charcuterie in, in Paris, right? They would be like, "Oh, that's amazing!" Uh, yeah. you know, little French accent there. That's amazing. <laughs> um <laughs> compare if you then think back to what we were looking at originally which was this graying hard-boiled egg and you know in fairly rubbish sausage meat um so yeah and and i'm and i appreciate the time that we took then going through that process because we were kind of blind to it where we got to the end and we're like oh no actually this is really good um so i'm glad that that's part of the book and and again like what we said about the internet and, and international chefs that's the sort of thing that a lot of international chefs, thank God to that point, hadn't ever come, you know, they'd never encountered a motorway gala pie. So that was their first foray into it. And hopefully <laughs> they never will encounter a, a motorway gala pie, but um, they look at it and they're like, Oh, Br- British food's really good.
0: It's about reclaiming the best of British again, isn't it? And, yeah. uh, and raising it. Um, Cheesy dauphinoise and caramelised onion pint. Now, this is kind of bringing together different cuisines. Yeah, you know, The dauphinoise obviously isn't uh, heritage British cooking, but that's what we do in Britain. We take, we're, we're not, we're not stuck with an idea like the Italians are uh, about, you know, what is, or the French are, about what is our own national cuisine. We're happy to to use our uh, the influences that have come into the country, the influences yeah. of our pioneers, and and also what we love on our travels. So tell us about why you chose this one.
1: Okay, so when we launched the pie room, uh, the, you know, the day we opened the actual room, we launched a pie menu in the restaurant. So, uh, you know, a separate menu that was just pies. And I... <laughs> slightly blinkered going into it only had meat pies on the menu right the reason why was because we'd put together a sort of gang of pies that i felt were really strong and um kind of from the get-go people were saying to me can you've got to have a vegetarian part on that you know you're in central london uh you know one day a vegan pie but people were like at the very least you need to have a vegetarian pie and i was like okay i'm gonna do it but i'm not just gonna chuck a vegetarian pie on there like it has to be as good as the others uh i always think of them sort of like marvel avengers like if there's going to be one that joins the gang it needs to be have something that really makes it stand out and, and stand up strong so we looked at kind of traditional, you know, vegetarian pies throughout the years. One that's like uh, you see consistently and, and actually like re- regionally, there's lots of versions of it, is like a cheese, potato, and onion pie. Okay. So
0: classic we were you know, as well.
1: Right. Um so we were we were looking, you know, lots of different ways of doing that and then it was actually my head chef, Mark, he's you know, he said, Boss I've got this idea for one uh, and we tried it out and I think the filling pretty much straight away we were like okay the basis of this is 100% right this is what we need to do so then we worked on on getting that refined um, getting sort of earthier flavours which is where we introduced caramelised onion into the dauphin was uh finding the right cheese at the time uh because it was like you said it had french influence we uh, you know in the restaurant we put comte cheese in it's one of my favorite cheeses um and then then i made it really difficult We, we made it the most beautiful pie in the restaurant right um it is the most complex pie to make it it does look beautiful when we serve it and everyone's proud of it. And it not only probably stands up with the meat pies, it probably stands above them in my eyes now. So I'm super proud of it. And, um, putting it in the book was a lovely moment for me and also for my head chef as well, because it was sort of his idea in, in, in its origin. Um, but the, the way we make it in the book leaves you with this beautiful blank canvas for decorating um and that's something i love i love that you know that moment that uh, people can take if you follow some of the advice in the book on certain pies such as that where the fillings made the day before so the the, the next day so if you do it on a saturday on the sunday you have the whole day if you want yeah. if you've got the luxury of time yeah. to spend making it look incredible yeah. Uh, and that's where people can be creative and we draw that creativity out of our chefs through the same thing um so yeah I, it's a sort of place in my heart that part yeah
0: it's that artist in you as well um the, the meeting of the the chef the entrepreneur and the artist is it always makes the the greatest chefs i think in in any particular area marco pierre white i think is the complete king of that one um but that's another story your last food moment the beef wellington that is the, mm. the the one dish possibly that you've become absolutely known for haven't you that's that's the, the best mm. is it the best seller
1: this is interesting right we don't have it on all week like i've never bowed to the pressure of that i've always said so we keep it for wednesday nights and it's a special and it, it gives you this destination night people book specifically for that they know welly wednesday that's the night to come to have the beef wellington and for us as a team it keeps it special as well so you know th- that level of refinement never sort of sways you never people don't get bored of making it or anything like that i've yeah i've served it in lots of different restaurants throughout my career and sort of taken the best bits i think from from seeing it done in different ways and then uh, Holborn, we, we just tried again, like over the, over the years, refined it and, uh, you know, uh, working with the butcher on, on sort of getting the aging right on the beef, um, down to the sort of tech, the weird techniques that we've picked up with pastry work for it. We got to a point where we were pretty happy with it. And then I just saw it replicated across the UK. Right. So I was like, uh, it's funny. I, would I thrive off of competition. Honestly, I do. And my my young, some of my younger chefs get a little upset about you know th- they see things being sort of quite closely. They are quite close versions copying. of what we do in different places. That. I'm not saying <laughs> no. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. There's no there's no real copying of restaurants. But um, I I've always explained to them that as a restaurant, one of our you know main sort of uh, ethos is is that we share our knowledge Mm -hmm. right we're never afraid of giving away what we do uh the reason why is because if somebody does take influence from what we do and does it potentially better what's the worst that can happen is that we have to push ourselves to be better right and to do better than that so it's constantly keeping yourself on your toes which is why we Mm -hmm. invite chefs from around the world to come and learn with us um so with the Beef Wellington, ours constantly evolves in terms of how it looks. So at the moment it has quite a sort of complex honeycomb lattice on it that we came up with uh it was about six months ago now, I guess. Oh no, sorry, it's before lockdown. Um which takes the chefs ages to do, but is unique and uh yeah. So anyway, the the Wellington recipe in the book, of course I was gonna put a Wellington recipe in the book, and when I was writing um, I was talking to the publishers and, you know, we, we sort of had, a I think it was a meeting about Beef Wellington and I said, um, look, this is my point of view on it. I have, I, I collect cookbooks. I love cookbooks. I have had thousands of them at home. Um, I have never really come across a truly thorough Beef Wellington recipe. People have always included recipes, that potentially are quite easy to make, right? Okay, you can bang out a Beef Wellington in in two hours. Well, you can, but it's never going to quite be that level that you want it to be because people really especially I mean now in lockdown people really want to create those things that mm. are like wow mm. moments with food right so I said to the team look I think we should not only do you know the most thorough beef wellington recipe I think that's out there mm. in terms of technique and tips and all these things mm. but I think it should be a chapter <laughs> and they they completely understood that and uh, yeah hence why there is the sort of beef wellington chapter in the book and um I tried to include everything that I could in there in terms of the, the, the unusual things that we learned over the years. In terms of, like, for example, when you roll out the pastry, the final pastry that goes around the Wellington, uh, you use that concept of resting pastry in reverse. So you, you put tension into the pastry and then wrap it quickly. And then, you know, the weight of the Wellington will cause that pastry to shrink around the meat. Um, whereas normally it would do that whilst it's resting in the fridge. So all of these kind of strange things. But what I wanted was if somebody takes that time to do that dish when it's served in the family table, they're not under that pressure that they would be in you know, potentially another cookbook's recipe where the ta- everyone's around the table banging their cutlery <laughs> like, how long for the Wellington? And you're stressing about it. Actually, you're in control the whole time and it's like, yeah the moment you serve it you know it's it's the best so
0: well i'm going to try that one that's going to be my christmas main dish most of the people at my christmas table are going to be vegetarian or vegan but there are three of us who love our high welfare beef so we're going to get it from trenchmore farm and we're going to do that recipe Mm. talking about high welfare beef obviously you use the best beef that you can get where do you get your beef so it's kind of
1: interesting right so a lot of our produce comes from Cornwall. Um, and all the time people say to me, Do you have Cornish roots? Because our fish comes from Cornwall, our meat comes from Cornwall. I have none, at all. <laughs> I'm a Londoner. But I just really appreciate uh, the sort of attitude to farming down there. And controversially in Devon as well, because I know the mm. Cornish and Devon mm. folk don't like to the be. The red
0: rubies in Devon are fantastic, amazing,
1: beef. right? Amazing, yeah. So uh, our beef comes from uh, Launceston uh, mm-hmm. and from what is Warren's Butchers, who work with you know uh, some amazing farmers. They were the first people that really taught me. Um, about the seasonality of beef I didn't really understand that when. Oh, I didn't grasp it fully when we opened the restaurant and Warren's were really adamant if I said to them for example okay look I want a 50 day aged Dexter sirloin on all year they'd say no we're not doing it you can go to a different butcher we can give you that between you know at the moment it's great probably for the next three months but after that we'll have to change breed and working with a butcher who is that protective of their product immediately your sort of hairs stand up on the back of your neck and you're like okay we're going to work with these guys it's the same with you know uh gilchesters who mill our flour exactly the same so they at the at the beginning when we worked out the type of grain that we wanted and the type of you know percentage of flours and gluten uh if i then said to them okay can you send me 60 kilos tomorrow or a hundred kilos tomorrow? They'd say, no, (laughs) they were like, no, we'll send you 20 kilos, but we want the flour to be as fresh as possible when you're using it. So we would rather pay more money for the delivery that comes in smaller batches. And I was like, I love you. Okay. I want to work with you forever because it's that, (laughs) you know the most important the thing to the pro- yeah. the most important thing is the product yeah. and then everything else follows after that um
0: yeah and what i love about that whole w- movement in great british food is that that is what most people say and when you're getting people into food and cooking that way and taking the time that attention to detail is so important mm. because of course that those farming practices save our soils which stops a yeah. massive drive towards climate change. And it makes us more accountable for the way that we eat. It's a, it's a huge thing. Mm. It's a huge thing. I mean, do you feel that when you're putting food on the plate?
1: Yeah, we do. Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, we talked about Thomas Keller before. There's always something that he said is that talent only takes you so far with, with cooking. And then really what separates you from everybody else is your product. what you're putting on the plate and you know we're very fortunate that we get to take our chefs around the country and you know go work with the scallop divers or go visit the you know the farms and and they have a respect for the food when they come back you know they they know to pay that little bit more attention to the scallop when they're cooking it so they don't overcook it because they've seen someone dive under the water and try to catch one and uh yeah so uh, shake
0: the hand the feeds
1: yeah exactly that
0: Callum, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to I'm going to do the Cheesy Dauphinoise this evening. Amazing. And uh, the Beef Wellington for Christmas. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good luck with the book. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review and tell all your friends to listen and share widely. And I'll be back next week to take you through vegetarian Italy with Christine Snowden.